All right. So you're going to start us. It's going to start with the music cue, and then it's going to go to Nelson saying, welcome to the, what do you want to call it? Inside the journey. No? Um, okay. Well, that's the only name we have, so. Well, this is the start of the Inside the Journey podcast. I am Nelson DeWitt. And I'm John Younger. And we are working on the documentary film Identifying Nelson, Buscando a Roberto, which is me, by the way. <laughs> and the film is about uh, the disappeared children of El Salvador. And uh, I think John's going to tell us a little bit about who they are. Well, and it's also about you, but but um, <laughs> specifically, um, I, I wanted to start by giving people a little bit of basic background on the war. Um, the Salvadoran Civil War was fought from 1980 to 1992, 12 years. It was fought by a coalition of guerrilla militias called the FMLN against the Salvadoran government. Somewhere between 70 and 80,000 people died. Um, it was a civil war fought in the context of the Cold War. One of the things I grew up knowing, I think people who are of age to remember the war in America would remember is that there were a lot of death squads involved in this war and uh, a lot of brutal images of of people being pulled from their homes and their families um, and disappeared and found in a in a ditch somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things that Nelson's story deals with that I, I don't think people are at all aware of um, is that of the disappeared, there were somewhere between 1,000 probably and 2,000 children who disappeared in this war for a, a large variety of reasons, um, some having to do with the government as well. Um, the aid organization that found Nelson is called Probuscada, and they were recently mentioned in an AP piece where they had some statistics um, about their caseload. They have initiated cases for 921 disappeared children. They've solved about just under 400, and they've made over 230 reunions out of those, out of those solved cases. And uh, I was one of those. Nelson was one in 1977. 1997. Excuse me, 1997. So he's been reunited for more than 15 years, almost as long yeah. as he was separated. Yeah, th this coming year is going to be um, in December. Is going to be I'll be reunited as long as I've uh, been missing, which is really interesting for me. So, so John, you know. I started this kind of as a blog a couple years ago, this uh, journey to tell my story. And it's always been interesting for me um, because obviously, like, w when you get into the story, which we have plenty of time to talk about, it's this really complicated, complex, amazing, over-the-top story of, of being lost from my family and then reunited. And it kind of makes sense why I'm here. Because I'm trying to share this story and it's my family's story. But why are you here? You know, I, 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 it's always interesting to me to hear why you got involved with this project. 
so we connected, reconnected in like 2010. Um, yeah. Facebook, and, right? Yeah, and you had two names. <laughs> um, and I remember when I knew you as a little kid, um, you were adopted. And, but that, I mean, we didn't discuss where you were adopted from. We didn't, we didn't really know. I, I don't, I know that now that you knew that you were from Honduras, but that was about it. That was all you knew, but I didn't, I didn't know anything. Well, tell me how, how, like, I'm thinking back. You always tell me the story of how you saw me and Derek at summer camp. I had a cabin full of very young kids and you were one of the older kids. Um, I don't know. I remember little bits and pieces about you. One of, one of the pieces was that on visiting day, your, your family came and I remember that your brother was this little blonde kid that looked nothing like you. You know, um, you were big for the cabin because you were a little older than we had five year olds. And I think you were eight. Um, and your little brother was like four and he was very slight and very blonde and pale skin. And um, I remember, you know, some of the other kids in the cabin, like when their families came, of course, just like I would with my brothers, I would fight with them. You know, <laughs> Whereas with your brother, he held your, he literally gripped around your finger the entire time. Um, and I'm not exaggerating, like from nine in the morning till four or five in the afternoon, he was holding your index finger. You know, it was, it was just a cute little image. Um, and why was that so meaningful to you? Well, because that's not what I would do with my brother. I'd give him a kick in the shins, <laughs> but he, it just, it, he was very attached to you. It, it, he looked up to you and, and you were brothers in every sense of the word, even though it was apparent visually that you didn't, you didn't look alike. And, you know, you, um, you were adopted. So I remembered that image and, and on the website, I, I talk about how just it, it may not have fit into the pretty little box that everybody else that's not adopted is, is used to. Right. But that you were brothers in every sense of the word. And, um, and when I came across you on Facebook, all those years later, and you were, um, you had the two names. I checked out your blog. You had the, the, uh, Anna's miracle, Anna's miracle blog. And it was fascinating because it, it was rough. Like you would conduct an interview with your mother, Margaret. And, you know, like the audio may be only literally discernible in a couple of spots. But um, and you I remember that one in particular, <laughs> um, <laughs> but you were doing time? it and you were psyched and and. You would have you'd be down in uh, Costa Rica or Panama, and you'd have these interviews with other family members talking about how things were and what it was like to find you, and um, and basically you were telling your story, no matter what, and no matter what, whether whether it was you know all the TV production values I'm used to and all that, like they didn't matter. What mattered was your story and that you had to tell it. And I, I knew that you're going to, 
be telling your story in one sense or another forever. Like, um, and it sort of fits in with what interests me about documentaries is, um, I don't know how to best describe it other than to me, like the power of storytelling is that you're, you're creating a narrative that doesn't otherwise exist. You know, you're helping define yourself. Um, and so when I came across that blog and your two names, um, you have a family that doesn't fit into this neat little package that everybody's used to. And yet you clearly, you know, everybody in your family has had to struggle with a lot of really tough issues. Um, and, and you have a different appreciation of, of what, what it means to be a family. And that was what was coming across in that blog. And, and I just, I wanted to help um, because I think that that is what television should be about or documentary should be about, whether or not it's with crackly audio and, and no camera lighting. Um, that's, that's the heart of it. And you had that. And so I wanted to help and help you make it more presentable so more people would see it. And um you have anything you want to just add? Um, there's this great line in the in the first scene of the film where I say, you know, uh, I remember we shot it there in L.A. and you were asking me, like, what's the, what's the mission statement? And, you know, when I go on camera and I talk about it, I say, I, I have to talk about this. You know, and I think that that it, it just kind of came out at the time. But that's really it. You know, like I. I don't know what else to do with this story other than to share it, than to talk about it. You know, and I think that for me was a big part of why I did this. And I think saying, saying yes to you in the film was also part of, um, you know, I, I recognize that you had been doing this for 15 years and that you knew a thing or two about, you know, how, how to make this stuff. And I realized that this would be a chance to kind of take my um, low budget kind of videos to the next level. So I think that was, that was part of it. You know, I, I definitely saw that it would be an opportunity to share the message with more people. And um, yeah, I guess that's why I wanted to start it. I don't know. I don't know. What, what do you want to get out of this? Well, I'd like to, tell your story in a way that you're happy with. Like I want to be true to it and, and try and just get it as honest as we can. Um, and I'd like for, um, I'd like for other people who, you know, other disappeared children who underwent your circumstances to feel like it was relatable and true and, um, while they may have slightly different circumstances, like something they're proud of watching too. In short, what would I like to see come of it? I'd like people to realize that there's this almost unbelievable circumstance um, in a country that is, you know, El Salvador is closer to where I am now in LA than than where I am talking to you, you know? Um, it's just our backyard. The people happen to speak Spanish instead of English. But when we went down and visited, your family treated me like family, and it felt very warm, and everybody we met with was great. Um, it felt like home. They speak a different language, um, but they, you know, they went through a horrible war, 
it um they've suffered a long time since and uh I just think that the story of the disappeared children is something that can be unifying in terms of of uh who of people trying to find a solution and and so I I would like our documentary to address it and help spread awareness and make people want to do something about it. What do you what do you think this project means to you now? I mean, we've uh we started this back in the fall of 2010, I guess technically, with the Kickstarter project and um 11. Uh, no, it was 2010. Oh, right. The fall of 2010 All we right. launched All the right. Kickstarter project. I'm and sensitive about that. <laughs> <laughs> what does the project mean to you now? I mean, has it changed from when you started? Um, I think it's sort of on two levels. One is like, even though we're not done with it, um, it's been interesting to personally, like when I started out, I, I wanted to help you tell your story and and feel like you have you had a voice in your story and i feel like i've seen you do some of that even though we have we don't have it in a presentation form and that's been tremendously rewarding that's been neat you know um and i i, I want to follow through and finish and and complete on that um that's meaningful to me and I think the second thing is when we went to El Salvador, granted I was there maybe 10 days, but it left a very strong impression. Um, it's a country that's only just over 20 years removed from a civil war. And here in America, we had a civil war more than 150 years ago, and we're still affected by it. And there were a lot of people that, I mean, you know, life goes on there and, 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 uh, and there's a lot of people, everybody's just living their normal lives, but, but a lot of trauma still exists from the war. And a lot of people are still suffering from things that happened. And, uh, I, I just would like to share what, what we saw and, and yeah, I think it's important. Should I ask you a question now? You can ask me whatever you want. Okay. Since that interview, you came out to LA in the in the beginning, and we we filmed the the Kickstarter interview, which gets incorporated into some of the introduction of the documentary. Um, since that start, how do you think things have changed for you? One of the things you you said to me early on was that making the documentary film was about taking a journey, and I think that I feel like I'm I'm in the middle of that journey. Like I, I get that sense and it's changed because I, I realize that what we are doing is a step up from, from the blog and from the interviews that I was doing then. And um, another reason that I, I think I started it was I realized very early on, I think growing up that I had an opportunity, to, you know, living in America, being here, I had an opportunity to sort of be the voice that my parents never had. And actually around, I think it was around 2005 or 2006, I was listening to a podcast and 
there was this, this quote, I think it was a lecture and the guy said, uh, anyone in America with a library card can now be published. And for that, the world has changed. And that quote really just like was burned into my head. And I realized, wow, that is true. You know, like anyone with access to the internet has the ability to, to publish whatever they want. It could be good or bad, but you know, like I could talk about the things that were important to me. And then in the winter of 2007, I saw the movie Freedom Writers, which is an okay movie. But I think the main point that I took away from that was was simply, you know, these kids were telling their story no matter what. What was my excuse? You know, so I just heard that this podcast saying, well, now anyone has access to be a publisher. And this other movie saying, you know, these kids are telling their story no matter what. And they had to do all this other complicated stuff. And I was like, well, I guess I have no excuse, you know. So I, I really, that's why I did it. I just started writing to help out my mother, to tell my story, to see if I could find uh, anyone else, you know, the, if I could get this to resonate with anyone. And I think one of the things I've learned from you that's definitely changed is, you know, the, the sort of the importance of production value and, you know, being able to tell a story effectively helps you cut through a lot of the noise that's out there. So I think that's the, the, the short answer is I think um, working on this has definitely helped my storytelling and it also helped me realize how kind of uh, what a big opportunity that I do have. What do you want people to know right away? Like what's to you the most important thing for people to know that, that you've learned from having two identities and having one foot here, one foot there, and, you know, having disappeared in the war and, and had family members look for you for more than a decade. And well, you had to make it easy, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, I, I, I guess it would be something along the lines of, of that we're more connected than we think. And we're very quick to dismiss and to write off people because they're different or they have a different ideology or, you know, they're, they're viewed as our enemies or they don't have the same religion or all these different things that we, that we push people away and we label them. And what, you know, what has been so interesting for me is that I'm smack in the middle of the two sides and that I get to see both of them. And what I learned is that the, they probably have more in common than people would think, you know, and that, um, you know, back when my parents were in the revolution and when they were fighting, they were labeled as terrorists of the time or communists, you know. Well, they, and, they, they were communists. Yes, they were. But I, I think not in the way that, that we use it here, where right. they were, so, that they somehow hated America and that they you know, wanted to destroy us and that, you know, I, I don't think it was with this malice intent to destroy the world or something like that, or make, make us all like this Marxian kind of, you know, conformity thing. I think it was more of an ideological view that they were living in a country where 93% of the wealth was controlled by, you know, 5% of the population and everyone else was dirt poor. And coming from that, they really wanted to change things for the better. And, you know, I can't even imagine 
how difficult it was for my parents to to do that to to like give up everything and and join the battle join the war you know and i think that yeah going back to what i said that we are more connected that you know even though they were you know written off by politicians here in the US that what they were what they wanted is the same thing that we want and you know if you can just look across the aisle and see what the other person you know get to know the other people then then it definitely changes you yeah. well, I'll take one of the questions you had for me what do you want to get out of doing the documentary what do you want to see happen from it I don't know. You know, I think that that was one of the things we we were going to talk about still, you know, I'm, that's the thing I, I can't really answer. And I think that, you know, I, my mind goes back to what you told me before, which is that this is a journey and I haven't come to the end of the journey yet. And I think that what what I want to change is, is I, I don't know. I can't like say, you know, this is the thing, whether, I mean, maybe it's the way that the U.S. handles their foreign policy or maybe it's the, um, you know, to, to help reunite more of the disappeared or maybe it's a bit of everything. You know, I, I can't really say. And I think that that's part of the reason for doing this. And I guess my goal is, I guess, just to be heard, you know, is is to really to try and fulfill that idea that I am the voice of my parents. And I think that that has been amplified for me just meeting all these people. Because now I'm not just sort of the voice of my parents, but I'm the voice of the other disappeared in a way. I mean, we all have our own story, but I've, I, I get an opportunity to share that story with other people. And I'm the voice of of the Salvadorans who don't still don't have a voice. You know, it, it, and there's there's still disappeared children that, yeah, yeah, that are out there, and still families that are are looking too. You know, that's one of the things that that struck me was how much uh, the, the families never forget and never let go. You know, one thing to me that's really hard to believe, and and I, I don't about the disappeared children is that there are still 500 open cases. And in speaking with the leader of Probuscada, she had said that if people really knew about all the efforts to find them, there'd probably be double that, you know. Um, 30 years after most kids disappeared, they disappeared in the early part of the war. There's 500 open cases. And there were 15 kids found last year, I think. Is that what you said recently? There's probably a lot of them are still alive. I don't know. I don't know that anybody knows what the percentage is. But 30 years later, there's 500 open cases, and uh, it's just a little. I, I'd like for that to be well known here in the United States. Um, that, that's something I'd like to see out of it. Yeah, and I think what was really powerful for for both of us was going to the memory wall in El Salvador. And you have 30,000 names, you know, it's like 10, God, more than 10 panels, right? Like, uh, not, not all of the dead and disappeared for some reason, it's 30,000 of the 70 or 80, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, well, anyway, it's, it's like a Vietnam memorial wall and there are all these names 
And out of all the panels, there's like half of one panel with the reunited. You know, it's just this long wall with all these names from all the different years. And there's only one section with the reunited. Like 300 people, right? Right. And then uh, even even in the U.S., I think it's it's under 50 people. You know, so we're like, forget one in a million, we're one in six million or something like that. You know, like we, there's so few of us and it, you know, you actually have to deal with a lot of really complicated, difficult situations. And that's kind of, you know, it can be tough at times. And when I talked to the other disappeared, there are these really ambiguous kind of open-ended life altering questions that you find yourself struggling with wrestling with and you really don't have anyone else to kind of talk to or you know uh just say that you're okay you know and i think that that that's part of um oh you know to to kind of go back to your other question about what has changed i think i realized that like when i began this i really felt very alone in the sense that i you know no one else had this crazy story happened to them and no one else could ever understand me. And what I realized by sharing it is that so many people can share bits and pieces of it and can relate to it in very interesting and different ways. Like I was flying back from London and the guy next to me um, started sharing the story that he had heard about how uh, on on the way to the ghettos in uh, World War II and the Holocaust that this woman like threw her threw her baby off the off the train and then this polish family found it adopted it and took care of it and then like years later they were able to retrace their steps and and that kind of thing and it was just you know an interesting it's like moments like that that make it really interesting to see how other people connect to this thing that you know only you know 44 of us in the u.s have ever sort of lived through you know, so I think that is, has been very meaningful for me to see uh, how other people connect with it, to have those conversations and for people to share those things. All right. All right. Well, I think that's a probably a good place to wrap it up. What do you think? Yep. <laughs> All right. So this has been the first of what is hopefully many uh, podcasts for the Identifying Nelson Buscando a Roberto documentary film. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast. Check it out on identifyingnelson.com. We'd also love to hear from you. So you can uh, find us on Facebook slash Identifying Nelson. If you have perhaps a more personal comment, you can always email at us at podcast at Identifying Nelson. Uh, that goes to John and myself. So we'd be We'll respond to you at some point. And um, I think our next show is going to be, we're going to talk about some of the personal highlights that we got from working on this film. So that is it. And we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. Bye.